Super Bowl 49 has come and gone, and there's a lot of stuff to get into surrounding the game. Is Bill Belichick the greatest coach ever? How did Seattle blow the game? Are the Patriots a dynasty? I'd love to talk about all that, but right now, I'm a little too scared because North Korea says, we're all doomed. Exiled by society, friends, lovers, and terrestrial radio. A guy with literally nothing left to lose. For 14 years, he's been telling it like it is. This is the zip code famous Michael Groff Show. All right, I'm secure under my desk. Broadcasting live from underneath my desk, a very frightened Michael Groff at the controls. Well, the controls are over there. I can... Reach my hand up from out out from under the desk to uh, get to the controls. But I'm a little too scared because North Korea says they're going to bring final doom down upon us. Final doom. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing out of fear. Um, they say that they are not going to negotiate with the United States anymore. Oh my God, the North Koreans aren't going to negotiate. Welcome in. It's the zip code famous Michael Groff show. Uh, we could at any moment be completely eradicated from planet Earth by the mighty empire of the North Koreans. Yes. Kim Jong-un. Well, I have to say this, though. I'm definitely... Look, the guy is... Uh, he's a heavy guy. He's a big guy. Fat people can be intimidating, especially fat people that steal all their food from their starving people. Dude is very large, I gotta tell you. Um, look, I'm just making jokes out of fear. Trust me. Uh, I'm I'm very, very much afraid of Kim Jong-un who could... Listen, this is the same guy. This is the same North Korea that uh, supposedly actually hacked into the Sony network and, uh, you know, really uh, caused a big uproar, even though no one actually believes that they did. And even if they did, they did what dozens, hundreds of other people have done regularly. Uh, they did what just about anybody does who wants to get access to free music or uh, games or any other stuff that Sony has. Like, um, I'm not too afraid of somebody that might have possibly hacked into an entertainment network of some kind. I'm not too afraid of North Korea at this point. Uh, even though I am live under my desk and uh, definitely very frightened, in case you hadn't noticed the trembling in my voice, it's it's very apparent that um, at any moment, I know that we could... What is the, What do they say here? Kim Jong-un says that the... the they, could, they will bring uh, ruin and final doom to the United States... Uh, as a result, they are not leaving anything off the table, including nuclear strikes. And you know that mighty uh, nuclear uh, domination that the North Koreans have. Didn't they do a test fire a few years ago? They had like some uh, nuclear weapon that they tried to test fire and the thing just kind of went. Phew. It really didn't do much of anything. I'm more afraid of Iran's nuclear program that they keep claiming they don't have. I'm more afraid of them than I am of uh, the mighty North Korea. The Iranian uh, nuclear program scares me far more. Anyway, um, 
thought I would get that out there just in case you were wondering uh, what the North Koreans are up to. They are plotting our demise uh, every day. And big fat Kim Jong-un, who clearly has not missed out on much beef and broccoli or whatever the hell. Um, like, no wonder, obviously, it's very easy to keep your people in check and keep them, uh, keep the propaganda going and keep the fear mongering going. And that's exactly what he's doing. Although I have to say the funniest part of this story, I was looking through it uh, just before the show here. The funniest part about this story is that <laughs> the comment section, there's somebody here says something. Um, let's see. Let me see if I can find it. Somebody says uh, he better not mess with Obama or he'll bring the hammer down on him. And then somebody else says Obama will do nothing but tell him to stop. Obama is the Paul Blart of this era. <laughs> Calling Barack Obama Paul Blart. It, I don't know why that just struck me. That just was, uh, it's too good. All right. Well, uh, with that note, we are underway. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, groffshow at gmail.com is our email address, by the way. It's groffshow at gmail.com. That's also our PayPal address for your most generous contributions to this program. Michaelgroff.com, the place to go for everything else Michael Groff related. And, um, Certainly a lot of other stuff to get into. Uh, I, I know I had to I had to lead off with that, but I do want to talk a little bit about Super Bowl 49. By the way, here we are. It's February 6th, 2015. And um, I don't want to go too deep on the Super Bowl discussion only because it's kind of late in the week and I'm sure everyone's kind of tired of hearing about it by now. But yeah, I got the prediction wrong. All right. I On the website, of course, I posted that I had the Seahawks winning the game 31 to 20. I really felt that... Um, the Seahawks were the better team here. I really felt like they were going to come out and, and dominate this game, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um, but, hey, I was wrong. And I'm not even going to sit here and call the Patriots cheaters. I'm not going to bring in deflate gate or any of that, even though NBC during the telecast a couple of times showed the sideline and showed the uh, people keeping vigilance over the footballs on the sideline. I just thought that was kind of funny, but they didn't even make a big deal about it. And at the end of the day, I think maybe Deflategate was, I'm not going to say much ado about nothing because I think anytime somebody cheats, I don't care if every team in the league does this kind of thing. I don't care if everyone tries to gain a competitive advantage. I think that anybody that cheats should face a penalty. And I'm sure that the Patriots organization at the most I have a feeling the NFL, when they conclude their investigation, is going to go, all right, we're going to issue a fine. It's probably going to be low six figures. They might they might take away a draft pick at the very most. I don't think anything bigger than that's going to come of it. Um, first, before I even talk about the game itself, Super Bowl week, I was secretly and sadistically hoping for bad weather here in the Phoenix area. And before you call me just a total asshole, which I know I am, but before you do, the reason I do that is because I just love it when there's bad weather here for Super Bowl week and the media members that are here from all over the country and all over the world, frankly, um, whine about the weather. And we have beautiful weather here in the Phoenix area for about, mm, I'd say about half the year is pretty livable and pretty damn awesome. Uh, the other half of the year, or at least five months of the year, from about May through September, is absolutely miserable and borderline unlivable. But um, I love cloudy days. I love rainy days because it doesn't happen here all that often. 
And I love hearing media members whine about 55 degrees and cloudy. Like that is, if that's the worst thing that happens to you in your trip to Arizona to cover Super Bowls, then I don't know what to tell you because that's not really that awful. Think about when the Super Bowl was in Dallas about four years ago and they had that horrible ice storm. They had, I mean, it shut down the city. Temperatures were like 20 degrees every day for most of that week. They had snow. They had ice. They had people without power for days, maybe even weeks in some cases. Uh, it was almost impossible travel for a while. The Super Bowl managed to go off, relatively speaking, without a hitch, even though some of the people that attended lived in places that didn't have power in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, nevertheless, um, that is something maybe to write a, a whining column about. But you spoiled little sports writers and media members who come to Phoenix and generally speaking enjoy this lovely weather that we have. We had a little bit of rain Monday and Tuesday. It was still warm though, even though it rained. It was still, you know, 65, 75 degrees every day. Then finally, I think Thursday night we had some rain. Friday it rained. There was fog. Saturday there was rain. Sunday morning we had this super thick fog, this blanket of widespread fog that covered much of the the southwest as well as much of southern Arizona anyway. And that persisted until at least noon, which is somewhat unusual, especially for fog to be that widespread and that thick. So my sadistic little wish kind of came true. And uh, I, look, it's not going to hurt tourism. People aren't going to go, oh my God, it rained one time when I went to Phoenix. There was fog too. I am never going back there again. They had the Phoenix Open going on the same week as uh, Super Bowl week as they always do. And so, you know, the big golf event. And they had a lot of other events. And generally speaking, most of that still went on. The NFL experience was still a big success. But I did see a couple of media members writing some, some bitchy tweets about the weather. Wah! It's 58 degrees and raining. Wah! Like, meanwhile, these guys are from, like, New York and... Uh, Massachusetts and Vermont. It's like, look, you're here. You know where you're from. There's two to three feet of snow. There's this giant blizzard that took place. The roads were impassable. Schools and businesses were closed for days. And you came here and whined because it was cloudy and it rained a little and it was 58 degrees. Wham. <laughs> I love the entitled media member whiny rants. So that's why, and every time that they have a big event here, I always hope for the bad weather just because I, I just love to read those things. It just makes me, I don't know, it brings me happiness for some. <laughs> I told you, I'm kind of sadistic. All right, as for the game itself, um, I don't know what it is about the Super Bowl when it's played here in Phoenix, but it's always, at least in that stadium, University of Phoenix Stadium, it is always like a... a I, an incredible game. I mean, think of um, several years ago, the Giants and Patriots played that amazing Super Bowl. Uh, what was that? 43, I think. Anyway, 42. Anyway, that Super Bowl was fantastic. And this one lived up to a lot of the hype and a lot of the expectations. Um, it was the first time in Super Bowl history that a team came back from 10 points or more down in the fourth quarter to win and that's exactly what the Patriots did. Uh, Seattle with maybe the most bizarre play call I've ever seen in not only the Super Bowl, but one of the most bizarre play calls I've ever seen in any NFL game ever. 
So I'll talk about that in a couple of moments. But, um, I mean, you can't ask for much more than a game to come down to the final play, the last 20 or 30 seconds. I, I don't know. I, I just thought it was a tremendous game. Um, uh, the That fourth quarter was fantastic. Tom Brady going eight for eight in the final drive. And uh, look, I'm not a Patriot fan. In fact, if you heard my last show, I mean, I got accused of being kind of a Patriot hater. I'm not even so much a hater. I just, anytime a team is accused of cheating, and especially with a track record like the New England Patriots have, I'm never one to want to stand up for them. And I, I certainly was tired of seeing the Patriots win. So, but looking at it, so I'm no fan, uh, but... Looking at it objectively, I mean, that was a tremendous comeback and just a great game. But I want to talk about that final play. <laughs> Seattle is on the Patriots' one-yard line. There's twenty, just over 20 seconds to go in the game. And you have Russell Wilson, who is an underrated quarterback, still doesn't get all the respect. Um, I mean, he is... I don't know, I wouldn't put him at Tom Brady's level, but he is certainly just as good and just as capable as Aaron Rodgers or Phillip Rivers or Drew Brees or just about any other quarterback in the NFL. Um, so he's a very athletic quarterback, very smart quarterback. And, I mean, to call a pass play from the one-yard line, I don't know. I mean, Pete Carroll, that was just a... I'd call it gutsy, but it was just plain stupid. You... You have the best running back in the NFL in Marshawn Lynch. And I realize Russell Wilson is, a, as I said, a capable, not just a capable quarterback, a very good quarterback. And I know if I needed one yard, certainly Russell Wilson is a guy that I would, I would ask for uh, in that scenario. But you have Marshawn Lynch. Everybody, the announcers, everyone in the bar that we were at, everybody thought that, that last play, they were going to give it to Marshawn Lynch and have him run it in. And even if he doesn't get in on that play, the the Seahawks still have one timeout remaining. Although they should have had all of their timeouts, but Pete Carroll mismanaged the timeout situation earlier because he couldn't get the right personnel on the field, and that's another topic. But you still had one timeout. Even if you don't get it in, maybe you get a little closer, maybe you lose the yard, maybe you don't go anywhere, but you could still call a timeout. And then you could come down, you could say, all right, we didn't get it in with the running play. Let's let's try because now to be third down, let's try two pass plays. Let's take our best shot at the end zone. You could have tried it that way. Pete Carroll, as much as I have given him props and as much as I have thought that certainly he was instrumental in the Seattle Seahawks having uh, their championship last year and just absolutely demolishing the Denver Broncos, uh, I equally just have... Uh, a giant question mark whenever I think of Pete Carroll right now uh, in that last play call. I mean, that was that was one for the ages. That was one of the worst play calls I've ever seen. And he's falling on the sword for his offensive coordinator, who probably really made that call. And he's saying that, no, it's it's his call, and, and that's what he wanted to do. And I, I respect him for, uh, for taking the blame, but you also have to look at it this way. I mean, that Seattle Seahawk locker room is divided. There's been reports that some of the players are wondering what the hell was up with that play call. Some guys are really questioning Pete Carroll. Some guys are really questioning even the decision-making of, of Russell Wilson. 
Why not give it to Marshawn Lynch? It is a good question. Every The announcers ask it. Everybody asked it. And I don't know why. So that's one that I, I won't understand. Uh, other than that, though, other than that one horrible play call, and, and you got, I mean, give it up to the Patriots. Yes, to make the interception in that situation, to even think that they might possibly pass and to be heads up enough to make such an interception. Yes, uh, Butler of the Patriots, obviously, the MVP of the game in a lot of ways. Yes, Tom Brady, of course, was amazing. The third time in history that a quarterback has thrown 50 or more passes and won the Super Bowl. I, I get it. I'm totally, you know, I'm willing to give the Patriots their respect here, but um, look, let's be honest. The Seahawks had it at the one-yard line with 20 seconds to go in the game, and I think had you given it to Marshawn Lynch, they would have taken the lead, possibly won the game. We'll never know. That was one for the ages. And even Bill Belichick says that to question uh, Pete Carroll and uh, to question that play call in that scenario is uh, the amount of, of speculation, the amount of questioning is a little bit ridiculous. It's certainly something that I, I'm sure the guy is losing sleep about it. This is one of those, this isn't one where you went out there and Buffalo Bills, Dallas Cowboys style got blown out. Okay, it wasn't like you lost 52 to 17 and you go, well, look, man, they were just the better team. This is one where you were right there on the doorstep with 20 seconds to go with a timeout in your back pocket and you couldn't finish the game. You couldn't make that one play and you made a, a play call that, to be honest, was incredibly stupid. So that is one that I know it's going to... And the Seahawks fans are feeling the same way. I was listening to a little of uh, Seattle sports radio on Monday and Tuesday and I just thought it was... <laughs> I did think it was pretty hilarious. Um and I'll admit, um, Seahawks fans being knocked down a little bit, you know, those guys that come that came here to Phoenix were wearing their stupid 12s because, you know, they're the 12th man and all that. I, I was kind of happy to see them hang their heads a little low and to shut up finally. So, I don't know. It was a good game, and that's really all that matters. It was uh, one for the ages. One of the definitely in the top five best Super Bowls. You know, we talk about the the Rams-Titans Super Bowl that came down to, what, the last yard there. That Giants-Patriots Super Bowl of, uh, what, 2009 or 10, um, whatever that was. That was a good one. 2008. Has it been that long? Oh, my God. <laughs> I really feel old. Um, what was it? The Bills and the Giants. The missed field goal. That's a great Super Bowl. And you can't ask for a game to come down to anything but the last play. So that was that's some of my thoughts on the uh, on the Super Bowl. Is Bill Belichick the greatest coach ever? This is another question that people keep asking. And you can't really ever say that one coach is the best coach ever in the NFL. It's not really a fair question because there's just too many factors that have changed over the years. Uh, people say, "Oh no, Vince Lombardi is the greatest coach." Look, Vince Lombardi was the best coach of his era. Just like I think Bill Belichick is the greatest coach of his era. Let's be honest. The NFL has two major eras that you have to think about. Pre and post free agency. It is just not the same league anymore when, uh, oh, and of course, pre and post salary cap. With, with a salary cap and with free agency and with as many teams as there are, 32 teams in the league now, um, it is much harder to win a Super Bowl. It's much harder to 
maintain a competitive nature to be competitive year after year consistently in the NFL with all of those factors. And um, you can't really compare Bill Belichick and, and Vince Lombardi. You know, it's, it'd be just like trying to compare Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, and Oscar Robertson to, I don't know, Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaq, and LeBron James. I mean, you, you can't compare them. It's different eras of the league. It's a different game. Yeah, no one's ever going to score 100 points in an NBA game again. No one is ever going to grab 55 rebounds in an NBA game ever again. So, yes, uh, obviously, you know, Will Chamberlain's going to hold those records, but it's a different kind of time frame. It's a different era. Just like in baseball, Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs in an era where the, the guys were the next most uh, home runs hit by a single player was like 12. I mean, that's the thing. You know, when someone is just so dominant and so much head and shoulders above someone else in, in a league, I mean, there was obviously a lot fewer athletes. There was a lot fewer... Um, people that had the the devotion. I mean, it was just a different kind of sport. I mean, those were guys that had day jobs back then. Whereas now, being a professional athlete is just that. You don't have another job. You get paid millions of dollars to be out there. So that's why you can't compare eras in not just athletes, but in terms of coaching as well. But I will say it's not just about that. It's Bill Belichick has, some people compare him to like Phil Jackson in the NBA. Phil Jackson had Hall of Famers on his roster. He always had he had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, um Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant. I mean, he had some of the of the 50 best players in the NBA history. He probably had five or six of them on his rosters at any given time. So it's hard. Now I understand still to be able to coach them and to win it's still a, a feat, and to have, what does he have, 10 championships? That's amazing. It, again, you're talking about a guy who had a lot of, not just Hall of Fame caliber players, but upper echelon, very, very skilled, very talented players at many positions. I mean, yes, Horace Grant's probably not a Hall of Famer as such. Um, you know, uh, Steve Kerr is an was an excellent player, maybe not Hall of Fame, but you're talking about, great role players and maximizing everything out of his talent, which is what a good coach does. But Bill Belichick, I mean, think about it. How many Hall of Famers has Bill Belichick coached over the years? Well, he's had Tom Brady, who is very likely a Hall of Famer. But let's keep in mind, Tom Brady was a sixth-round draft pick. It's not like he inherited the team and got a guy. He didn't get... Um, you know, a Brett Favre type, or he didn't get a, a guy that was established. I mean, remember when, when all of this started, the Patriots quarterback was Drew Bledsoe. That's, that was their quarterback. And then Bledsoe went down and they went to some guy named Tom Brady. And then, you know, what does he have? Four Super Bowl champions now. They've been to six Super Bowls. They have been a consistent winner every single year. And Bill Belichick has, for the most part, done it with, you know, relatively average talent. But he has maximized that talent. I'm not saying that everyone on the Patriots have, but I'm saying that he's taken guys that, uh, frankly, you know, were not necessarily, they didn't always have the number one draft pick. They didn't have the best draft picks. But he was able to find people in the draft and through free agency that he was able to maximize their talent and maximize, get the most out of it and get the guys to all play as a unit and buy into a system. And that is, 
That's a great coach. Before he retired, I would say Bill Cower was another guy that was, you know, right in there in a Bill Belichick kind of territory, former Steelers coach. And there's a lot of good coaches, but I mean, uh, you can't argue with with the fact that what I mean, how many losing seasons have the Patriots had in the last 15 years? What, uh, one or two? I don't even know how many times they've missed the playoffs. Not many during that run. And that's exactly why I think Bill Belichick is the best of the era. They've been competitive so consistently. And this is difficult for me to say because, trust me, I would love to come on here and rip Bill Belichick, and I certainly have uh, before, uh, when he stormed off the field uh, in one of those Super Bowls. What was it? I think it was the Giants game. He stormed off the field and just uh, really looked like a sore loser. And I've certainly ripped him for that. And I, I find the guy to be very difficult to like. He's condescending. He's snarky. He's very short with the media. He's, um, uh, let's just put it nicely, he is less than honest when it comes to certain things, especially like Spygate and all this other stuff that you know that he was involved in and he he had knowledge of. And even during the deflate gate stuff, he was very quick to deflect any any sort of blame whatsoever. And maybe he really didn't know anything about it. How, however, I doubt that sincerely. But um, so I'm not coming here with a I, this. I'm not like a Bill Belichick fan, and this is not some fanboy uh, love that I'm distributing here. This is um, this is just being objective. I'd love to make a case against what I just said, but you really can't. All right, moving from that to the uh, the rest of the stuff around the Super Bowl. Uh, what about the commercials? Yes. Every year, it seems that the crop of commercials gets a little bit more lame. I have made that observation for years and years, and it just seems that that's the case. And uh, I know most people have broken down the commercials or participated in these online polls about which one was the best, who were the winners and losers. Nationwide had the weirdest Ad. Well, actually, Nationwide had probably one of the more controversial ads, but the weird ad of the Super Bowl and the one that kind of made me cringe a little bit. Um, and this isn't just me that had this reaction. Apparently, this blew up all over the social media sites. It was uh, a big uh, topic. The Nissan ad featuring Harry Chapin doing Cats in the Cradle, that was probably the weirdest ad. And the reason is because when I first saw it, I went, oh, man, the Cats in the Cradle. And I went, wait a minute, Harry Chapin. And so for those of you that didn't see the ad, it's basically this, it's this ad with um, for Nissan. There's like a father-son sort of bonding thing. It's one of those, uh, it falls into the category of commercials that's touching Aw, shucks, kind of. and You know, there's several categories. There's the slapstick, throw a snow globe into someone's balls um, type of humor, and there's that. Then there's, like, just a straight commercial, which some car companies do. And then Nissan did this, and they used Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle. The only problem with it was it's a car commercial with the music of Harry Chapin, who himself was killed in a horrible car accident in 1981. I thought that was kind of weird, and I was not the only one. Uh, that was all over Twitter and Facebook and blog sites, and everyone was just like, what the hell is going on with Nissan? Didn't somebody at the ad agency kind of go, boy... Yeah, never mind. Most of the people at those ad agencies are younger than me. 
zit-faced kids right out of college. They probably are familiar with the song or something, but they don't know anything about history or... Well, this will just be a touching little song, and we'll put this, you know, into a commercial and... Was weird. I mean, what next? We're gonna take someone who has diabetes and have them prop Dunkin' Donuts. Well, it came from college just the other day. So much like a man, I just had to say, son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head and he said with a smile, "What Um, we should probably take a break. This opening segment is uh, well, this is almost the whole show. This segment. I was disappointed that I got... I, I haven't missed a Super Bowl prediction in a while. I usually get them right. And, you know, a lot of the Super Bowls are blowouts, and even the ones that are close, the team that I usually thought would win did, and this I, I totally botched this one. I'll tell you what. Um, the rest of the commercials, I'm not even going to get into it anymore because it's just not, not even really worth it. What was the cost? Three and a half million dollars for a 30-second spot? I uh, I sort of think, wow, I um, I got to tell you, some of those commercials, when people spend three and a half million dollars, I mean, are they, I, I, they obviously are going to get a return on their investment, I mean, you would think, but boy, some of these, I just wonder how. Some of those are the worst commercials. I don't even remember half the products. I, I mean, I, obviously, the big ones, you know, Coca-Cola and Nationwide and Nissan. And Ford or anybody else, you know, but ugh, whatever. All right. Uh, still a lot of stuff to get into, um, provided that we don't get nuked during the break by the by North Korea, who uh, apparently are about to bring final ruin, final doom to the United States. Uh, we'll try to make it back here in one piece. And uh, I'll I'll go and try and find my radiation suit, and um, I'll see. I actually knew somebody that had a bomb shelter. What we, I used to have friends that uh, they they had a house, and in the backyard, it's absolutely true, there was a bomb shelter back there. And we used to go down into there, and um, it was I mean just hilarious because you're down in that thing, and you go, you know, if a nuclear bomb hit, there is no way that this damn thing is going to protect you from anything whatsoever. I mean, the, the ground will be blown apart. There's no way that this thing is going to save you from, uh, you know, and there was like this giant like crank. There was like this thing um, to pump in air and, and to get water. And it's like all this, it was built in probably about 1950. That would be a great place to broadcast a show from though. Yeah, I don't know those people anymore. I haven't talked to those guys in, in a long time, but um, yeah, they were a, they were a couple. They they got divorced eventually, I guess. I think the dude wound up living in the bomb shelter, and uh, the woman got the house. I don't even know. Anyway, we'll take a break. <laughs> I I knew some very weird people. Let me just say it very very plainly. I still know weird people. I'm a weird person, so you know, birds of a feather. We'll be back. It's the Zip Code Famous Michael Grav Show. Michael Grav 
Show. I am so stupid. It's the Zip Code Famous Michael Groff Show. You're the light, you're the night, you're the color of my blood. You're the cure, you're the pain, you're the only thing I want to touch. Never knew that it could mean so much, so much. Friday, February 6th, 2015. Groffshow at gmail.com, the email address. It is groffshow at gmail.com. That's also our PayPal address for your most generous contributions and for everything else Michael Groff related. It is the one and only michaelgroff.com for more of me. Good news, bad news. The bad news is that we have to do yet another 2016 election update. I know it's only 21 days away. I know it's become an unofficial feature on this show. I know you don't want to hear about it because, really, you don't even want to hear about it five days before the election, but we're doing it anyway. That's the bad. The good news is especially for Republicans, is that Mitt Romney has decided to bow out. He says that he is not going to run for office in 2016. And uh, I think that many Republicans out there, I, I'm sure they won't ever admit it because God forbid they ever admit you know, to being wrong about something. But I'm sure that many Republicans out there are breathing a very giant sigh of relief. Of course, it still leaves the pool kind of flat but at least Mitt Romney is out of the uh, out of the running so this leaves the potential pool of candidates still to guys like Scott Walker he says he's going to announce in midsummer uh, Mike Huckabee who quit his job at Fox so that he could run you have um, who else is in this uh, mix Marco Rubio potentially Chris Christie potentially Donald Trump <laughs> I know that he's still kind of in the mix for all this as well. He, he always says he's going to, even though he never actually winds up running. Donald Trump's a, an interesting dude. Uh, he's definitely entertaining. I mean, he is clearly insane at times. I think that he just says the most outlandish things. And I think sometimes it's just for the shock value. He is the Donald. But wouldn't you, I mean, partially, the sadistic side of me, once again, uh, comes out. Wouldn't you want to kind of see a Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton presidential race? Two people that should never be in charge of the country. I would trust Donald Trump with a business. I would not necessarily trust him with this country. And Hillary Clinton. I mean, those two going back and forth, the snipes, the barbs. And you know that for sure Donald Trump would be more than willing to hit below the belt and hit Hillary right in her penis, which I'm sure that she has. And there is no question that she would fire back as well. And um, I, I mean, the first comment is, what is up with that hair? I mean, that is probably the first comment that 
anybody would make. And for some reason, that's the one comment nobody ever makes publicly to Donald Trump. I don't understand. Uh, who else? Rand Paul would be in the mix. We have news on Rand Paul and Chris Christie, by the way. I want to get into this a little bit. Um, so I don't know. Uh, the measles thing is still out there and we're still talking about it. It's still spreading around. Obviously, this whole thing started about, what, eight weeks ago, maybe somebody who had the measles decided to go to Disneyland. And then because it is so contagious, it spread to countless other people. And now um, measles, there's hundreds of cases that are popping up in state after state. It seems that the most numerous of those are in Maryland, Arizona, and California. And so, but I mean, it's called into question why we're still not vaccinating for measles, for MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, like we used to. Because it was thought to have been wiped out about 15 years ago in this country. And for some reason, um, I guess parents, you know, it is a voluntary thing. Most states, and I say the word voluntary with the air quotes, because while it is voluntary uh, for people to vaccinate their children, in most states, you cannot enroll your children into school, into public school at least, unless they have been vaccinated. And so, in a sense... Yeah, it is voluntary, but if you don't, if you don't vaccinate, your kids can't get into school and then you're in violation of truancy laws. So basically, it is mandatory. It is the law for your children to be vaccinated. Now, Governor Chris Christie was asked about this. He was um, he was in Europe earlier this week. He was uh, out there uh, roaming around and I don't know, somebody got a hold of him and asked him about this uh, situation. And, and he, I guess off the cuff, I don't know, he just sort of said, look, I don't really think that the government should mandate vaccinations. I don't. I think vaccinations should remain voluntary. And uh, I volu- You know, I would certainly. I've vaccinated. Uh, I've certainly had shots and my kids and all that other stuff. You know, so he's he's for it personally, but he doesn't think it should be a government mandated thing. And Rand Paul essentially said the same thing on CNN when they asked him about this. But then. Rand Paul took it a little bit further. By the way, Chris Christie was skewered for that opinion. For some reason, if you think it shouldn't necessarily be mandatory for people to have vaccinations, that is somehow worth skewering a guy. Look, that's his opinion. Um, I uh, kind of share that view as well. I understand, though, that there are certain things that we should try to vaccinate against. And that, I mean, religious beliefs, I think, is, is a silly reason not to vaccinate your children. But... You know, the First Amendment is one of those double-edged swords, and sometimes you just have to live and die by that double-edged sword. Um, that's a, a whole constitutional discussion probably for another day. But Rand Paul gave the basically the same opinion of Chris Christie, but he went a little further to say uh, that he believes that some of these vaccinations cause severe health ailments in people. He, of course, brought up the whole thing about well, you know, it's the old argument. There's a lot of people that say this. This is not just a Rand Paul opinion. There are people that think that these vaccinations can bring about things like autism in children, uh, severe immunodeficiency issues. Uh, some people die as a result of these vaccinations. And I, I'm sure that I don't know of anybody that's actually died from a vaccination, but I'm sure it has happened. It's probably a one in a million or one in 10 million kind of thing. And I am sure that somebody has gotten a bad vaccination at some point. I'm sure that something has happened and somebody somewhere 
has suffered some type of ailment as a result of a vaccination, either directly or indirectly. And so people will always point to that exception to the rule and say that this is a reason not to vaccinate. And I just think that that's probably the most ludicrous thing ever. I mean, people have died from having their tonsils taken out. People have died from having their appendix removed. Does that mean we should stop the appendicitis? We should stop uh, tonsillectomies? No. Unfortunately, in any sort of medical situation, in anything that happens, there is always a risk. Even if it is infinitesimally small, there is always a risk. There's a risk when you get an allergy shot that an air bubble goes into your blood and hits your heart. I mean, there's a risk of anything that you do. There's a risk of choking to death when you go out uh, to a steakhouse tonight. So there's a risk of just about anything. Um, the, the thing is, is that generally speaking, is, is society better because we have vaccinations? And I think the answer is yes. The libertarian in me does say, yeah, it should be voluntary. But it's one of those things where I, I think the way that we do it now, I think that having uh, children vaccinated against measles and polio and all these other vaccines, I, I, I don't see a problem with it. I don't think it's harming society. I don't even hear about cases where someone gets severely ill or dies as a result. Sure, it's happened. I'm sure someone's going to link me to a story where it's happened. I'm sure somebody is going to show me something from Prison Planet or one of these other tinfoil hat websites where, you know, like 92% of everyone that's been vaccinated has a, a microchip inside them and the government is secretly watching everywhere that they go or some kind of conspiratorialist nonsense like Rand Paul is uh, in a in a very roundabout way trying to trying to say I, governor chris christie i think was fine in his comments rand paul is just um very 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 casually very subtly trying to uh, get the tinfoil hat stuff in there about illnesses and all this other stuff and uh, that's where i get a little bit concerned but of course what else would you expect from rand paul the guy's an idiot he certainly is not taken after his pops that's for sure what a what a nut job. <laughs> this is a guy that is running for president in all likelihood. This is a guy that is going to be out there and um and he's going to be in the in the forefront. And people try to lump him in with the libertarians and he's not really a libertarian. Ron Paul is far more libertarian than Rand Paul ever could be. Uh Rand Paul is one of the, more of a, of a tea party kind of guy and he's kind of a I don't even know. And I know he's going to have supporters and I know it's going to be big and I know people are really into the guy and I know that um, he's got quite a following too. But uh, when I see comments like that, I do, I, I genuinely worry about Randfall. I really, <laughs> I don't know. I, there's even some doubt whether or not he's actually a doctor. There's a, there's a lot of doubts about this guy and there's a lot of question marks about him. And again, uh, there's no way that that guy's getting my vote in 2016. I don't care what his position is. I don't care what he says. Uh, I am definitely not on board with whatever he's selling. All right, now, we haven't done one of these stories in a while, but uh, this is always good. We have a teacher of the year, and I mean this quite literally, actually. An elementary school teacher has been charged with three counts of child rape after police say that she had sex with a former student who lived at her home. Prosecutors say that Darcy M. Smith, 
41, had sex with the boy when he was 14 and continued to have sex with the former student until he moved out of her home at the age of 18. So for four years, this chick was nailing one of her former students. And I'm just looking at her picture here. And she's, she is definitely, well, I mean, she's teacher hot. She looks all right. She's blonde. Um, doesn't look like she's in bad shape. Looks all right. Um, she's not like that Deborah LaFave who was like really something else in Florida. Remember that story from, I don't know, eight, nine years ago or whatever. That chick was crazy hot, but um, <clears throat> still not bad. Uh, this is like a Mary Kay Letourneau story. I mean, she was uh, living, she had the boy living in her home for four years. He's now 19. He told police about the incident in May of 2014. And here's the best part. While Smith was allegedly having sex with the former student, she was named Regional Teacher of the Year in 2012. <laughs> well, yeah, of course she's Teacher of the Year. Teacher of the Year in my book. The only weird part about this story, well, there's lots of weird parts, but I think the weirdest part about this story is how come the kid, after moving out and, you know, a year later, why does the kid rat out the teacher? I mean, is there some kind of fatal attraction thing there? Did she threaten to kill him? Is there some kind of weird scenario going on there that I'm not aware of? Because that would be about the only way. And I know people out there are going to be like, well, it was wrong, and she took advantage of him, and blah, blah. You know, I know, I know there's probably a legitimate reason, and I know sexual abuse, statutory rape is wrong. You would be having a terrible reaction if it were a, a 41-year-old man and a 14-year-old girl. Right, I get it. All right, I understand. But, what I'm, you know, what I, I just know what it was like to be a 14-year-old boy. And I know that's about, you know, eighth grade-ish or freshman year of high school. And when I was in eighth grade, I had a math teacher. Let me tell you something. She was legitimately hot. And um, I'm just telling you right now, like, if I had the opportunity, I would never have run to police. I would never have ratted out the situation. I would have kept it to myself um, because, you know, I mean, that would have just been fantastic. Are you kidding now, had it been like my English teacher then trying to do something, yes, I would have run to police immediately because she was, she was, well, she was, I think, A, she was probably a little bit crazy and B, um, she was a train wreck. So, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely a, a scenario, but this, I don't know why you'd rat this out. Like why? Four years though. That's impressive. Yeah. My math teacher, I'll tell you this. We had a party at the end of the year in eighth grade. And so we went to a water park and she put sunscreen on me. And like, you know, she's putting it all over. And I'm just like thinking to myself, and of course, you know, in your 14 year old mind, I'm like, oh my God, you're freaking out. And uh, I guess, <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, the, the trunks got real tight real quick. And uh, it wasn't, it was not pretty. All right. It was. It was a little bit weird, but uh, I mean, if a if a halfway attractive woman or even a picture of a halfway attractive woman brushes against you as a 14 year old, it's just like, all right, I'm boned up. Um, but I mean, we're talking about I mean, this was, you know, this was a legitimately attractive person. And uh, I guess my point in all this is 
I mean, that's the closest I ever came to a sexual encounter. And, you know, there was nothing sexual about it at all. I'm just going to tell you that if it was ever, if there was ever anything that would have happened, I would have just kept that right to myself. No, you know what? Well, yeah, I would have. I'm sure. I didn't have a lot of friends anyway. I had like two friends. Like, who who was I going to tell? <laughs> who was I going to say anything to? Uh, all right. Anyway. Um, teacher of the year, though. I mean, I can see why. Public schools are doing a great job. Don't let anybody tell you different. You know, I don't know why I didn't tie this story into the 2016 election stuff when we were talking about it earlier in the show, but here you go. An argument over presidential politics turned ugly after a woman is accused of beating her 66-year-old friend to death with a slow cooker. Yes, always good when someone beats someone else to death with a crock pot. Oh, and look, it's from Detroit. Uh, a suburban Detroit judge on Thursday ordered 50-year-old Tawana Sullivan of Detroit tried for first-degree murder in the October death of Cheryl Livy at her home uh, at a senior... What is this? A senior housing complex in Livonia. So a woman is accused, a 50-year-old woman is accused of beating her 66-year-old friend who lived in a senior citizen home to death with a crockpot. Outstanding. Detroit, once again, coming up with new ways to kill people. Uh, police officer Michael Lulin uh, says that he found Sullivan sobbing near her mortally injured friend and saying that she's sorry that she, quote, did it. Defense lawyer John McWilliams tells the Detroit News that the women were, quote, arguing over presidential politics and whatever the controversy is between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, he wouldn't say which woman took which side, although I'm pretty sure you can guess. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Just based on the names of the victims, uh, victim and the assailant, which was on which side. Anyway, uh, first degree murder carries a mandatory penalty of life without parole. Sullivan's next court date is February 12th. So there you go. Detroit coming up with new and creative ways uh, to kill people. Fantas I've never done a story about a person beating someone else to death. I'm going to hit you with his crockpot. Oh, so I've never. Never heard that story before. I don't know why I'm laughing about uh, murder. I think homicide is a very serious story. And um, I should be treating it as such. So I'm going to uh, do that. I'm going to take a break and collect my thoughts. Say a few prayers. Um, the presidential policy. See, I don't know. People that argue politics with their friends. I don't know if that's such a good idea. Um, what you should do is you should only have friends who are like-minded. That's how you avoid these kinds of things. Um, if So, for example, if you're a, a liberal, only have liberal friends. Don't bother to have conservative friends. That's the best way to do it, I think. That's some healthy advice. Yeah, uh, certainly. Boy, is, is this country more divided than ever? Are we just a more divided people than we've ever been? Have we become more polarized than at any other point in history? I don't know. Maybe the Civil War was a little worse because, you know, a war actually erupted between two. But, I mean, we've kind of got that. I mean, we got people beating each other to death with crockpots. So that's Detroit really <laughs> representing well on the show lately. Um, <laughs> I love it. 
Uh, I don't know why we don't just fence that thing off and just say, all right, closed for demolition. Just blow the whole thing up, try to start over, maybe build a, a really nice community there. Imagine if we did that and Detroit became the the Emerald City of America. It became our, well, it became like new New York, even a, a better New York, New York without the scumbags. It became just like a a great, majestic city. Can you imagine 50 years in the future, Detroit is like the, the most sought after city. It's the most expensive city to live in in the world. And it's just, um, it's this marvelous creation. Imagine if we could do that. There's a Twilight Zone episode in that somewhere. I'm just not creative enough to write it. Before you write in your angry stuff, I've said the same thing about New Orleans. We should just fence that thing off and say, sorry, it was a mistake to build here. City is closed. But the difference between the two is New Orleans has a lot of other problems, just logistically. It's a city surrounded by water that somebody decided, we're going to build a place here. We're actually get, we, we here's a plot of land. It's in the swamp. It's in the marsh. We're gonna. It's surrounded by water. It's bowl shaped. It's below sea level. This is a great place to build a major metropolitan city. Whoever had that brainstorm, uh, obviously, <laughs> obviously, uh, wasn't thinking very clearly. I don't know, but that's one of the main reasons uh, to not have New Orleans. I mean, that and the fact that you know, yeah, of course. Not only is it surrounded by water, not only is it bowl-shaped below sea level, but it's in a very wet climate. Um, you know, floods regularly. If you have to have pumps around your city to keep the seawater and the water from Lake Pontchartrain out of your city, it's probably a good sign that you weren't meant to have a city there. And I know you could say the same thing about where I live here in Phoenix. I mean, who builds a massive city in the desert? The difference is... Water flows down the mountains to here, all right? There will come a point where we won't be able to sustain life in this city because there'll be too many people living here because half the year the weather is actually great. And I'm sure, you know, we'll eventually drink all the water that we have and all the water table under the ground and the water in the, in the rivers and the lakes and the canals around here. That will eventually happen. We won't be able to keep up with the rain and snow and all that. I would still say, I would make an argument that this is at least a better designed city. At least it's a better designed idea than, than um, well, Detroit or New Orleans. Detroit was just a bad concept. It was a good concept that went bad. We'll build a city that thrives on the auto industry. What could possibly go wrong? <clears throat> we'll build a city that thrives on manufacturing. Because there's no way that people are going to stop buying cars, Right. America will always be the dominant leader in the auto manufacturing industry. Therefore, Detroit will always be successful, right? Yeah, and then about 1975 happened, and uh, we figured out that, well, America was still making the same stupid cars, and everybody else, all the other countries, especially Japan, started making cars that were superior. And, of course, there was also a recession, and... Um, well, we stopped making a quality product as well. I mean, you factor in so many things, and then Detroit turns into, well, Detroit that we all know and love. Oh, well. Well, at least they have the Red Wings. So that's something that's going for Detroit. That's about the only winning t product in town these days. I mean, uh, certainly not the Pistons. What are they? Are the Pistons, how many um, 
have they they're they're like last in the NBA, aren't they? Well, the the 76ers. But I mean, they're pretty much bottom of the Eastern Conference other than the Sixers, right? And then the Lions, well, we know the Lions are pretty terrible. Um they got absolutely screwed over in the postseason by the Cowboys. And at least they made the postseason, so there's that. And the Tigers are okay. But um right now Detroit the only the only title that they're going to get is from the Red Wings maybe. Who knows? All right, we'll be back. We'll continue. Uh, Third segment, we'll talk about uh, Brian Williams. Noted liar, trusted newsman from NBC. And uh, so much more. It's one of those segments. We'll just throw a bunch of stuff at you, just like the rest of this show. We'll throw a bunch of stuff at you. We'll see if you like any of it. Hopefully, you, you like something and you stick around and keep listening. All right? That's how it works. That's how this show is. If you haven't figured that out yet, then... I don't know what to tell you. We'll be back. You're listening to The Michael Groff Show. MichaelGroff.com You're a child Crawling on your knees Toward it Making mom so proud But your voice is too loud you love this show, you want to donate to us, Show at gmail.com is the PayPal. All right. So on to prominent journalists. Yes. You know, first um, it was CBS and Dan Rather that had the credibility issue because of the forged documents or the report of uh, documents obtained by CBS News, which of course were, you know, uh, well, phony, may not have even existed in the first place, whatever the case was over there at CBS. That controversy, who knows how true all of that was, but it certainly put quite a stain on the reputation of Dan Rather and his career. But that is not even close to the level of shame that is coming toward Brian Williams of NBC News. Now, Brian Williams has been the host of NBC Nightly News for, I don't know how long now, what when did Tom Brokaw, Tom Brokaw, when did he uh, bail out on that? That was, it had to be eight, ten years ago now, right? At least. You know, it's so sad. Tom Brokaw, I heard him the other day. And I know that he still makes an appearance on NBC from time to time. They still wheel him out there. But generally, I haven't heard much from him, except he does have these things that appear on the radio. I guess they're commercials, they're paid for, or so, I don't know what they are. I've heard them on sports radio even. It's like, it's called an American story with Tom Brokaw. And it's like this. It always starts out, they're non sequiturs. They're just these weird, 
like 60 second bits. And I wish I had one here because I would totally play it for you. But anyway, it's always this weird thing. Uh, I can remember a time when people in our country settle their differences with their fists and not with guns. This is an American story with Tom Brokaw. When I was seven years old, Larry Anderson cut in front of me in the lunch line and was able to get the last piece of pizza for the day. Well, I swore my revenge on him, and I took him out into the schoolyard, and me and my fourth forum chubs beat the holy hell out of him. We had to wash the chalkboards for a grueling 88 days after getting a stern lecture by the principal. It was literally the most embarrassing moment of my life. A few months ago, while I was at a coffee shop, I saw Larry, and he said hello to me, and I somehow stumbled out the words, Hi, Larry. He laughed at my lateral lisp and wondered how I could possibly get such a successful job with the speech impediment that I have. Feeling all that rage flowing through me once again as if I were a child, I reached back and sucker-punched him right in the testicles. The lesson to this story is, once a douchebag, always a douchebag. This has been an American story with Tom Brokaw. And that's pretty much how it is. Those are the little American story tidbits with Tom Brokaw. It's always some weird non sequitur or weird story that kind of goes nowhere. And then at the end, he tries to tie in a, a moral to it or something or other. Not always, but I mean, that's pretty much how it is. I don't know. It's just stupid. So that's the last place I've heard of Tom Brokaw. But at least he didn't really leave NBC in shame or he didn't really get out of the business in shame. He's just sort of quietly faded off into the sunset. And that's what you sort of hope for as uh, somebody in the business. Either you go down in a blaze of glory, uh, a blaze of glory, or you, uh, or, you know, you hope that you can just sort of quietly retire. You can just step out on top somehow, but that is not the case for NBC's Brian Williams. Here's a guy that, um, well, he's gone on the talk show circuits. Uh, well, he went to David Letterman specifically uh, some time ago, and he told a story about how he, when he was an embedded reporter in Iraq uh, back in 2003 or 2004, he was in a Chinook helicopter. He claims that he took some heavy fire. Uh, they were involved in a, in a battle with some uh, folks on the ground and that his helicopter basically got shot down. He didn't use that exact verbiage, but he basically gave you the impression that he was involved in a firefight, that he was involved in some combat, and uh, he went down, and you know that's the whole thing. And you know it was a it was a very tenuous thing. And of course, the first thing I thought of when I heard this story was how Hillary Clinton kind of told the same story, how when she was the first lady and they went to like Kosovo or something and she took some fire while she was landing. And then, of course, it came out that that story was a complete bunch of BS. And I thought the same thing here. This is exactly, it's a similar thing. And you know what's weird is what actually happened to Brian Williams was, I guess they were in a Chinook helicopter. Actually, I have the audio. Here's the audio of him telling the story on... Uh, David Letterman's, it's only like two minutes, so just try and hang with it. This is his original story to David Letterman about what happened. We were in uh, some helicopters. What we didn't know was we were north of the invasion. 
We were the northernmost Americans in Iraq. We were going to drop some bridge portions across the Euphrates so the 3rd Infantry could cross on them. Uh, two of our four helicopters were hit by ground fire, including the one I was in. No kidding. Uh, RPG and, and AK-47. What, what altitude were you hitting? See, we were only at 100 feet. That part's already a, a fib because according to a bunch of people that were actually on the helicopter with Brian Williams, their helicopter was not hit. Now, he kind of made it sound like you know, uh, we were all hit. Well, one of the helicopters was hit, but it wasn't one that he was on or even one that he was near. Apparently, it he was an hour behind the helicopters that actually in, were involved in the firefight. But let's continue with this, you know, bunch of BS. Be doing 100 forward knots because we had these massive pieces of bridge beneath us on slings. What happens the minute everybody realizes you've been hit? Uh, we figure out how to land safely, and we did. We landed very quickly and hard, and we put down, and we were stuck. Four birds in the middle of the desert, and we were north out ahead of the other Americans. Oh, my. And so, as a, as, a, as a guy, as a journalist, what, what do you think? This is a great position to be in, or holy crap, i got to get out of here. I, uh, more toward the holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the this is great was flying over Iraq. Holy crap started when I realized the now deceased former four-star general we were traveling with, Wayne Downing, said to me, uh, using an old Vietnam era uh, term because he was a Vietnam infantryman, we're over Indian country. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll forget. By the way, that never happened either, according to the reports. Give uh, the political incorrectness. He said, this is unpoliced, virgin territory. We're not near, near any U.S. troops. Mm -hmm. So we got hit. We sat down. Everyone was okay. Our captain took a purple heart injury to his ear in the cockpit. Um, but we were alone. They started distributing weapons we heard a noise and it was bradley fighting vehicles and abrams tanks coming they happened to spot us this was the invasion oh the u.s invasion they saw us they surrounded us for three days during the sandstorm that was so big it suspended the war effort it was called orange crush and they that part incidentally is true because because they were an hour behind the helicopters that actually took the fire they were settled down uh, because of a sandstorm. So this part is accurate. So see, there's a grain of truth into what he's saying, but the whole thing about taking helicopter fire and having to go down because of it, uh, because of um, yeah, combat fire from the ground, that never happened to him. They got shut down because of a sandstorm. Let me see if there's... Oh, there's no more here. Okay, so that's the audio. Essentially, half of the story is sort of somewhat kind of in the vicinity of accurate. Although even that part about all the tanks surrounding them and all, there's various accounts to what actually happened. And I understand there's some things, fog of war and being embedded and, you know, it did happen more than 10 years ago. Okay, that's fine. There are some details you're going to overlook and there are some things that you're going to miss. Just like with the Hillary Clinton thing, she tried to use the excuse of, well, you know, it happened a while ago. It's hard to remember all the details. Well, here's one thing I can tell you. I have never been shot at, but I could say for certain that if I was ever in a situation where I was being shot at, because that is not something that happens to you every single day. If you're in a situation where you're shot at or in a helicopter that's taking fire, especially when you're embedded as a reporter in Iraq, you're going to remember at least most of the details. You may not remember exactly where you were. Well, you probably would, actually. 
You may not remember exactly how many rocket-propelled grenades were fired at you. You may not remember every single thing that every single person said. You may not remember what you had for breakfast that morning. Okay, there are going to be some details that you do not remember, potentially. But one thing's for sure, you'll remember whether or not you actually took fire or not. Now, Brian Williams, initially, his reaction when people said, oh, uh, you're full of BS, his initial reaction was, oh, well, you know, uh, I, there's some details. Gosh, I mean, you know, it happened so long ago. You don't remember all the details, blah, blah, blah. Well, again, that's one of those things. Yeah, you don't remember all of the details. That part's true. But uh, whether or not you took fire or not, whether or not you were in a helicopter that you came under fire or whether or not you were in a helicopter that was an hour behind the choppers that took fire, that part you probably would remember. So the bottom line and what you should take away from this story is that Brian Williams is full of crap. He is a liar. Yes, the the trusted newsman that he is and the respected journalist and NBC and all of this. There's going to come a point where this dude is not going to be on the air anymore. He's either going to get fired is going to step down. Something is going to happen to where Brian Williams is not on the air anymore. And that's what's got to happen in this particular case. Because when you're full of crap, when you're as a newsman, when you are, you're out there, you're supposed to be reporting things. You're supposed to have credibility as a journalist. And as soon as you don't have that anymore, uh, that's when you're out. And that's what happened to Dan. Rather, whether or not you believe he actually besmirched the president's name whether or not you believe that he knowingly went with forged documents and went on with that story anyway um any of that stuff it doesn't really matter the problem is is once you start to lose your credibility it's almost impossible to get it back as a journalist so that's why dan rather had to be gone and that's why you know so many other people in the business you have to be airtight on details all right and that's the problem. And that's why Geraldo's kind of a joke, too. And that's why a lot of these other guys, you know, Geraldo didn't have the quite the same credibility issue. He was just a guy that went on the air and actually drew maps of where they were and the troop movements and what the plans were. And believe me, that almost cost him everything, too. But yet he still gets chance after chance. Well, again, that's because he's at Fox News and they don't really care. They figure Geraldo is still a good... <laughs> You know, they don't think of the guy that got punched in the face by a neo-Nazi. They don't think of the guy that drew maps of exactly where the troop movements were during the uh, the invasion of Iraq back in 2003 and 2004. They don't think of that guy. They just think of, uh, I don't know what they think of him. I don't even know why Geraldo's on the air. And I don't know how I keep moving away from Brian Williams and taking pot shots at Tom Brokaw and Geraldo and Dan Rather, when really it's Brian Williams who's the scumbag here. But I don't know. That's just that's just me. I'm one of those stream of conscious people. I'm very tangential, I suppose. All right. I think uh, that's pretty much it. We covered everything. We covered the uh, the liar that is Brian Williams. We covered, um, we gave you the, uh, the, the measles update, I think. I think we, we've gone through everything. The presidential stuff. Detroit is a terrible place to live. We've learned a lot on this show today. A lot of stuff that we probably already knew, but quite frankly, a lot of stuff that had to get out there. Nevertheless. All right. <laughs> Brian Williams. That's going to be an interesting story to keep following. It's um, it's something I haven't really 
commented. This has been going on for like a week or two now, but I haven't really gotten into it. I, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't think it would become as big a story as it has already. Yeah, who knew that a guy that was uh, on one of the you know major networks doing nightly news would come out and be a liar like that. Peter Jennings is rolling over in his grave right now. Because it turns out, I think he was about the only one that was credible out of those. That, remember? Remember when it was Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Brian Williams. You know, those were kind of your big names. Almost all of them have some sort of basically either fallen out of favor, died, or just um, had to resign, had to resign or quit in shame. Brian Williams is going to be the next guy that is going to be in that category. Oh, well, that's it. Thank you for tuning in. The Zip Code Famous Michael Graff Show. Show at gmail.com, the email address. Also our PayPal address. It's GroffShow at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. For everything else Michael Graff related, you know you can go to the one and only michaelgraff.com. Good night, everybody. Everybody.